Our scripture reading this morning will be from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Way over in the back of the New Testament, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. We will read this passage together as we prepare for our pastor's message today on Can Faith Without Works Save? Then tonight, our pastor will preach on a sequel to this uh, particular sermon that will be entitled Justification by Works. So we can be thinking about this as we read from the book of James this morning. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. I'll be reading from the New American Standard translation. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says that he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister without, is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, and yet you do not give him what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But some may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. I hope you still have your Bible, your New Testament, open to that passage that Lee has read and that you're able to use your worksheet today. I heard a pastor tell about driving down a busy street in Pasadena, California one day in his little Volkswagen, and he had two little children with him. One was kind of uh, lying down in the front seat and the other was in the back seat lying down. And they were singing one of the great hymns of the faith. You know that one that says, if you're happy and you know it, shout amen. You know, one of those great hymns. And it goes like, if you're happy and you know it, shout amen. If you're happy and you know it, uh, stomp your feet. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And in the last stanza goes, if you're saved and you know it, do all three. And he was just motoring along in his little Volkswagen, and they started begging him to sing with them. And uh, finally, they just kind of wore him down, and he decided he'd sing along with them. 
And so he was singing along with the children at the top of his voice, oblivious to everything going on around. And he pulled up at this uh, stop sign, just as it stoplight, just as it turned red. Now he's sitting there at the stop stoplight. Now remember that the only person you can see in the Volkswagen is the is the driver. And he's singing at the top of his voice, if you're saved and you know it, do all three. And he's clapping his hands and shouting amen and stomping his feet. And he said, um, he, he just, you, have you ever had that feeling that you know, somebody was looking at you? you know? And he said he kind of looked over and he, and he noticed that there was this silver Mark IV parked right beside him on the, in the other lane. And this man and his wife were just kind of, you know, just kind of staring at, what is that? What, what's going on? And he said, when the uh, Continental went on down the, the street, you know, light turned green and they started on, he started to shout at them, hey, there's two little children in this car also. But he thought, well, you know, it won't do any good anyway. They won't understand. And, and then he thought of the words he was singing, if you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. Can you think about uh, what happened on Monday this week? Can you think about what happened on Tuesday of this week? The response you had to others and the influence you had with others. And what about Wednesday and the attitude you manifested in your home and with your children? If you saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. Somebody said that faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can sure see their results. And that's what James keeps digging at and driving home in this marvelous little epistle that we've been discussing on Sunday night. That's the heart of it. We've come to the heart and soul of the epistle of James today in this passage. And he keeps driving home the theme of the letter. If you're saved, your life is going to show it. If there is genuine faith, then there is genuine evidence of that faith. How can you say that you have been saved if your life does not show it? How is it that you can believe so right and live so wrong? That's the question he keeps driving home in this little epistle. And he keeps suggesting that genuine faith will produce genuine works. And he begins the passage that Lee read for us with really two questions. It's a double question in the verse. What use is it, is the first question, what use is it to say that you have faith and not works? And the second question is, can that kind of faith save one? And there seems to be in the book of James a conflict, a contradiction to the great theme that is in the New Testament of justification or salvation by faith alone. That is one of the greatest themes, one of the greatest doctrines in the New Testament, by the way. Salvation, justification by faith only, armed with a book of Romans and with the note of justification by faith in his conviction 
Luther became the vanguard of the Reformation, believing that one was made right before God, not on the basis of what he did, but on the basis of his faith in what Jesus did. And there seems to be a conflict between what James is asking in, verses, in verse 14 in those two questions and that marvelous verse of Scripture, For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Or that marvelous passage that says, He saved us not as the result of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So much is there evidence of a conflict that Luther himself rejected the book of James as a faulty, a right strawy book, he said. Right strawy book. In other words, it has no real substance, depth, or strength. He didn't even believe it ought to be in the canon. And there seems to be, and the question is, does this justification by works that James is, seems to be driving home in this little epistle, does that conflict with the great theme of the book of Romans? And the theme of Romans, of course, being that one is justified before God by his faith in Jesus Christ, and by that alone is their conflict. I think in trying to find the answer to the question about concerning the conflict, that we need to recognize that there are three tremendous contrasts between Romans and James. Would you get these down? Three contrasts between Romans and James. The first has to do with time. Paul in Romans is looking at the root of salvation He's looking at what happens when a person, at the moment of a person's salvation, and what happens at the point of his salvation. He's talking about the time one is saved. And James is talking about the fruit of one's salvation. Paul is talking about the root. James is talking about the fruit. James is saying that if a person has had genuine conversion, if he has been genuinely saved, the result of that salvation will inevitably pro produce in the result of fruit. If you have been saved, James says, if there is root in your salvation, there is going to be fruit. He's not saying a person should bear fruit, or perhaps he might bear fruit. He's saying if a person has genuine faith, he will bear fruit. The second has to do with perspective. Now Paul in the book of Romans is looking at life from God's perspective, and James is looking at life from man's perspective. Paul is looking at the fire in the fireplace James is looking at the smoke that comes out the chimney. Like a person driving down the street and he sees smoke coming out the chimney, what he sees is the smoke, but really in his mind, in his, in his consciousness, he sees the fire in the fireplace. He assumes that there is fire in the fireplace because he sees smoke coming out the chimney. And the converse of that is that if you see no smoke coming out the chimney, must be no fire in the fireplace. If you see no fruit of works in life, 
then there must not be genuine salvation. That's what James is saying, not me. The third has to do with terms, terminology. Now remember Paul in the book of Romans is instructing, but James in the book of James is exhorting. And they use a term that is familiar to Baptists and to those who have been to church at all. It's the term justification. You've already heard me use that term several times. You may not know the slightest, I have the slightest idea about what it means. Most of us don't. When Paul uses the term justification in the book of Romans, he's talking, he means, quote, or defined, an act by which God declares the sinner righteous, though he is in the state of sinning. Now I want you to get that. It's an act by which God declares the sinner righteous, that is, right before God, even though he is in the state of sinning. It's called imputation. It means that God declares us righteous. It means He declares us to be just as if we had not sinned. He declares us righteous. He dresses us in the righteousness of Christ by His act of mercy and grace. When James uses the word justification, and you must get this for the understanding of this passage, he is using it synonymous with the word validation. In other words, James is saying that a person's faith is validated by his works. His works validate his faith. If you want to know if a person has genuine faith, the only validation of that is the difference in his life, is his conduct, his character. Now the two questions. What good is it if a man says he has faith and not works? What good is that? What good is it to have a badge that you're a lifesaver if you can't swim? If a person says that he has a lifesaver badge and he can't swim, we, 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 we are going to assume one of two things. We're going to assume that he's lying and he doesn't have a badge or that the badge is phony. If a person says that he has faith and there is no works in his life, we're going to assume, we can assume from James that that work, that faith must not be genuine. Now I know that I'm getting down to where we all are living and moving, so you stay right with me if you will. And the second question is, can faith save him? That's the way it is in the King James. The New American Standard has it, can that faith save him? What does that faith mean? What's he referring to? He's referring to the faith that just says it has works, that just says it has faith, a, a faith of words. Can that kind of faith that does not produce works, does not produce faith, fruit, can that faith save him? Now there are two ways that the Greek constructs a question. Now watch this. One construction, a question that in the Greek assumes the obvious answer, yes. And one question constructed in the Greek assumes the answer, no. It is the latter in this passage. In other words, James is saying, in essence, 
Can faith, a faith that does not produce works, save? The anticipated, obvious answer is not on your life. Now there's some characteristics of saving faith. What we are dealing with this morning is theological by nature and I want you to know that what we're talking about is going to clear up a lot of things, misunderstanding about what Baptists believe, about security of the believer and it's the watershed in my opinion concerning the, the denominations that exist in our land. Now there are some characteristics of genuine saving faith. They're in the passage that I've read, or Lee read. I want you to notice them. First of all, let me share with you an illustration. I was leaving the cemetery one day and we had just buried a young man who was profane. He was, an, he was a fornicator. He was a deceiver. He was a liar. He was a thief. He was a drunkard. And he had been killed in, a, in, in, an, in an accident as the result of that kind of lifestyle. His mother said, you know, John was saved when he was nine years old. And you know what we Baptists believe? Once saved, always saved. And I really felt like saying this. Yes, but in order to always be saved, a person has to really be once saved. And I think that there are some characteristics of genuine saving faith. Number one is in verse 15 and 16. Verses 15 and 16. Genuine faith is not indifferent, but it is involved. It is not indifferent, but it is involved. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, hope you get something to wear, hope you get something to eat. What use is it? He asked. Now notice two things about that. First of all, the people that are in need are brethren, brothers and sisters. They're believers. They're Christians. And secondly, it is a legitimate need. It is the need of bodily necessity, food and clothing. Now he says, if you, are, if you say you are a believer and you have faith and you see somebody like that and you don't respond and become involved in them, with them in their need, you don't give them their to their give to their need. Phillips asked it like this: What on earth is the good of that kind of faith? James is saying, if you say you have saving faith and you don't get involved in the hurts and needs of others, it's stupid to even say you have faith. Now I want you to flip over to the not flip over, but turn in your, your, your scripture to 1 John chapter 3. I want to read a, 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 a correlating verse. Verse 16 and 17. We know love by this. This is 1 John. We know love by this. That He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, a closed heart, how does the love of God abide in him? How is that possible? They're conflicting terms. Somebody said it like this. Love is not only an emotion, but a series of acts by which we convey to another, I am involved. Genuine love conveys to another that he will not commit the supreme treason that some people can commit to one another, that namely, he will not fail or desert when he's needed the most. Now when there is genuine faith, genuine love, genuine conversion, there is involvement and not indifference. Now if your lifestyle is characterized by indifference to needs of others, you need to do some checking. Number two, genuine faith is not independent, but in partnership. Verse 17, 17 says, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead. Now underline the last phrase, that's the key, being by itself. Genuine faith cannot be by itself. You know that song we used to sing, or we was on the hit parade back when they had the hit parades on television? Uh, love and Marriage. Love and marriage, they go together like a horse and carriage. Dad was told by mother that you can't have one without the other. Listen, you can't have one without the other. You can't have faith without works. That's what James says. Number three, genuine faith is not invisible, but on display. Verse 18, I pastored a young lady in our church in Fort Worth who, who had been through a divorce and she was going with a man who had been divorced and she, was very, she was, felt like she was in love with him and she wanted to, to, to uh, marry him, but she wanted me to talk with him. She said, I'm not really sure that he's a Christian. And so we set up an appointment on Saturday morning. He was really excited about it, I could tell. And he, he came in and we sat down and talked and, and, we, and I began to talk to him about his relationship with God. I talked to him about whether or not he was a Christian. And he said, yeah, he said, I'm a Christian. He said, but that's between me and God. He said, for me, Christianity is a private thing. He said, I don't get out here on the street corner like some of you folks and everybody passes by and shout, hey, I'm a Christian. He said, I believe that's just my business, my business and God's. You know, like a Clairol Christian, you know, nobody knows but God. You know, I, I said, you know, I think you're right. I, I think that being, becoming a Christian is a private matter and nobody can be saved for you except you. But I said, I don't think it is possible for a person to be a Christian and keep that a secret. You know, our, uh, our baseball team is playing uh, 
in the College World Series out in Lubbock, if you hadn't heard that already. And chances are we may play Grand Canyon College on, well, on Wednesday. We are going to play on Wednesday, the winner of David Lipscomb and Grand Canyon. Suppose that the manager, the coach of the Grand Canyon baseball team came up to Mike, he'd love this, and said, Mike, we got a great team. We got power, boy, right up and down the line. Our hitters are, man, they've got power, but we're not going to display that. We're going to keep that a secret. That's just between us. And we got fireballing pitchers that can wing that thing out, and they got tremendous breaking stuff, and they're just overpowering in their speed. But we're not going to let anybody know that. We've got strength, but we're not going to display it. Now the word display there, or the word to show there, means to bring to light, to put on display, not yourself, but your faith. It's what Jesus meant when He said, you are the light of the world, and a city set on a hill can't be hid like something in a department store out there so everybody can see. Look at what God's done in my life. See the transformation of the character in my life. I'm not living like I used to live any longer. And this is the evidence of what God has done. You can't be a Christian in isolation. Number four, it's not merely intellectual but from the heart. He said, you, you say that you believe in one God? I'm no pantheist. I'm no naturalist. I'm a deist. I believe in one God. He said, great, welcome, join hands with the demons. For they believe the same thing. And when they think of that and when they believe it, he says, they tremble. That word means the, the, that you really, it's the description of it, they get goosebumps. It means to become ruffled and uneven. It means their hair stands on end and they get goosebumps. Nobody believes in the power of God any more than the demonic world. But they believe it and understand it and know it intellectually. They give mental assent, assent to that truth. And genuine faith is not believing with your head. It's responding in faith from the heart. It's heartfelt religion or it's no religion at all. Somebody told about it being in a group where the president of Dallas Theological Seminary was speaker. And they had great theologians from the East Coast there. And they had a young man there, a seminary student. And he just loved what he heard. And after the, um, after the uh, uh, speech was over, he, he, he went up to the president of Dallas Theological Seminary and said, could, you stand, could, we, could we go somewhere and just dialogue? He said, I think that'd be so stimulating. And the professor said, I don't. And he said, you don't? He said, no. He said, Jesus is not here for dialogue. I'm not here to present Jesus for dialogue. I'm here to present Jesus for obedience and faith. Now, if you want to respond in obedience and faith, then I'll go talk with you, but not just to dialogue. In other words, the kind of faith that saves is not a faith that just talks about it. 
It's a faith that moves. It's a faith that goes. It's a faith that responds. So that when the children of Israel stood before the Red Sea, they didn't stand there and dialogue about God. They stepped out in faith in response and obedience. And this is what Chitwood says about it. Look, look at this. Faith is more than an intellectual attitude toward a fact. It is more than believing about Christ as one who would accept other historical data. Faith is a disposition of the individual toward God by which he claims the merits of Christ for salvation and commits his life to God in obedience to His will. It cannot be completely introspective nor completely overt behavior. It must be both. It is believing in your mind that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord and then responding to His Lordship by committing yourself to Him and living for Him. And the best illustration I can do it, I have, is the one I'll do, and I know I don't have time to finish the thought. We'll work on it a little tonight, but this right here. I was in a service one time where the evangelist had a bunch of kids, children, and he's going to tell them how to be saved. And he said, see this $5 bill, boys and girls? Look at here, $5 bill. Man, you could buy a lot of hamburgers with that. He said, I'll tell you what I want to do. He said, this is a gift for you. All you've got to do is come and get it. All you've got to do is come and take it. First one here gets it. Man, they, they like to tram, stampede it, trample one another getting to it. One got it and he went back to his seat. And the man said, that's just what it means to be saved. God's gift, all you've got to do is come and get it. That's fine, but it's wrong. If he had said this, Here's a $5 bill. The first one is a gift. You don't have to work for it. I'm not going to take you out of here and make you mow my lawn to get it. I want to give it to you. But the first one that takes it, my gift, has to go home with me today and be my little boy from now on do everything I want him to. Now, if you want to come get the gift, the $5 bill, in order to get it, you've got to give yourself to me, then come get it. That'd make a difference, wouldn't it? Now salvation is wrought and accomplished by the finished work of Jesus on the cross and through faith in His finished work and by that alone man is justified by faith. But in receiving that gift of eternal life, man commits his life to follow Christ to the end. And so James says it in the end, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. We learned when I preached that sermon on death, this principle, that where there is separation, there is death. When the spirit is separated from the body, there is death. When there is no works with faith, that faith is dead. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. Now this invitation. I know it's kind of dangerous to talk about something like this lest we begin to doubt salvation. And that's, that's a tool of the devil also. 
But you know, sometimes I think it's important for us to confront reality and face reality. If your life doesn't give evidence of fruit, fruitfulness and, Christ, and Christ-likeness, if it doesn't give works evidence, then there needs to be some checking. I mean, this is serious business. This is eternal. And there may be some this morning who just taking a long look at this and they've been convicted of it for several years maybe. You say, Pastor, I know that I don't have genuine salvation. I know I don't have genuine faith, saving faith. And I want to be saved. But I'm also interested in those of us who have periodic evidence of indifference and unconcern. That bothers me also because I know that when we have these spasmodic periods of time in our life where we give evidence of darkness that the man out there who doesn't have genuine faith looks at us and says there's nothing to it. And so I'm concerned about that person also who in some period in his life, not, not continuously, but from in some period in his life, perhaps today, you're not living for Christ. You're not giving evidence of fruit. Now you have before and you will later, but you're not now. I'm concerned about your relationship to God also. And I want us to see revival begin in this church, but I know that it will not happen until we begin to bring together in relationship what we do with what we believe what we do with what we say. And I know this. And when the folks of First Baptist Church begin to lift to the level of their profession, their practice, we're going to be, we're going to have to, we won't have to have a campaign to build new buildings. We'd have to put folks over in the gymnasium, getting them in here. Now who's the hindrance? I'm the hindrance and you're the hindrance. And I want us to confess to God and I want us to get it right. I want it to happen today and I want to see the Spirit of God fall on us fresh and I want to see the fallow ground broken up and the church revived and hearts changed and lives redeemed. So will you honestly seek His will in this prayer? And if God leads you to respond in the invitation, we'll wait for you right here. And God waits for you to come. Maybe you don't want to come, college students, you're back. Maybe to put your life here with us promise of letter. Others who need to come and join our church. Join me in this prayer. Father, it's a great thing to open your word, Father, and see things that are so truthful to be reminded and to be warned and exhorted and instructed. And Father, it's just clear as a bell when we open the book of James that it's not enough just to say, it's not enough just to profess and to play the game. And we know what we're to be, what we are to become. And so I pray you'll confront us this morning with that reality, with the reality of our own lives and the reality of what we ought to be. Oh God, oh Spirit of God, I pray that none of us shall leave today from this church until we've settled this matter once and for all. And I ask it in Jesus' name for His sake. Now in a spirit of prayer, I'll invite you to come standing. You come just as you stand. It's just as soon as you're standing, you come while we sing. Stand and come right now.